good morning. Welcome to Redeemer. My name is Brian. Uh, I hope you all had a good Thanksgiving. Uh, you all have a good Thanksgiving? Good. Well, today we turn the calendar from Thanksgiving to the first day of Advent. And so we're standing at the intersection of gratitude and wonder, where a heart full of thanks now turns into a heart full of amazement as we ponder the miracle of the Incarnation. How one who was eternal stepped into time. How the one through whom all things were made walked amidst his creation. How one all-powerful became a helpless babe. As we ponder how, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And here, at the beginning of Advent, I want to think with you this morning about the beginning of the Christmas story. You see, where a story begins can be tricky, because every story has a backstory. And this is something that you're familiar with, right? If we think about the Lord of the Rings, the backstory to the Lord of the Rings would be the Hobbit. Or if you're thinking about Creed 1 and Creed 2, the backstory to Creed 1 and Creed 2 would be all of the Rocky movies. Or if you're thinking about the backstory to Star Wars, you might say you need Solo or Rogue One. Children, here's one that should be easy for you. Uh, if you're thinking about the backstory to Frozen 2, that's what? It's not Frozen 1, <laughs> it's Frozen, right? Just let it go. And, and if, you're thinking, if you're thinking about uh, the backstory to Avengers Endgame, the backstory to Avengers Endgame is what? All previous 21 Marvel movies, right? You see, every story has a backstory. Even your story has a backstory. In The Soul of Shame, Kurt Thompson says this. He says, telling your story began with someone else. Long before you arrive on the scene, people started talking about you. They talked about your gender, what you would be named, who they hoped you resemble in appearance and character, and likewise, who they hoped you would not resemble. You began your life out of and into this narrative that others were already telling. One of the struggles I've become aware of in my own life in recent years is a struggle with stinginess. And reading Kurt Thompson's Soul of Shame, I've become aware that this is a generational struggle. You see, my struggle with stinginess, I can trace back to my mom's extreme value of don't waste anything. And I can trace my mom's extreme value back to the fact that my grandfather grew up in the Great Depression. You see, our stories begin long before we're born. Every story has a backstory. So where does the Christmas story begin? Well, if you're reading the Gospel of Luke, and I hope you will in this Advent season, you might say that the Christmas story begins with the angel Gabriel, who announces to Mary that she will conceive and bear a son. Or maybe you'd say it begins with a decree of Caesar Augustus for everyone to go to their hometown to be counted. 
Or maybe you say the Christmas story begins when Mary gives birth to her firstborn son and wraps him in swaddling clothes and lays him in the manger because there is no room for them in the inn. But I want to go back even further this morning. Here's what I'm going to tell you today. The Christmas story begins at the very beginning. And understanding that reorients your story. Let me say that again. The Christmas story begins at the very beginning. And understanding that reorients your story. So we're not going to go back to the beginning of Luke. We're not going to go back to the beginning of Matthew. We're going to go to the very first book in the Bible, to Genesis chapter 3, because that's where the Christmas story begins. You see, sin and death had entered the world. And God, as he's announcing the judgment in the midst of the covenant curses, God issues a promise. And it's the first promise. And it's the promise of Christmas. It's the first gospel, the proto-euangelion. It's the promise of the coming Messiah who would vanquish the evil one, rescue his people, and make all things new. That's the beginning of the Christmas story. You see, the Christmas story, and your story really, begin at the very beginning. So I'll read all of Genesis 3 this morning for context, but we're going to focus on three verses. In Genesis 3.15, I want you to see the promise of Christmas. And we'll look at two seeds, the promise of Christmas. And then in verse 20, we're going to look at the faith of Christmas. The faith of Christmas. And we'll look at two names. And then in verse 21, we're going to consider the clothing of Christmas. The clothing of Christmas. And we'll look at two coverings. Now, for those of you who are keeping score at home or a one on the Enneagram, my first point is longer than my second two points combined. So stay with me uh, here. Let's focus our attention on God's word in Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, determining good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, 
and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to me uh, to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden... He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come this morning to contemplate the beginning of Christmas here in this Advent season, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts that we might hear your word. I pray that you would convince us of our sin and misery, that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and that you would renew our wills by the power of your gospel, through the work of your Holy Spirit, and through the mediation of your Son. I ask that you would forgive the one who teaches his sins, for they are many. May we see Jesus and him only. Amen. So first of all this morning, let's consider then the promise of Christmas in verse 15 with two seeds, the promise of Christmas. So when we come to verses 14 and 15, this is the climax of the whole narrative thus far, right? All of the story leads to this. So in Genesis chapter 1, God makes all things and he declares them good. And then he gives a charge to Adam and Eve. He blesses them and says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all the things that live on the earth. And then in Genesis chapter 2, 
he takes Adam and he places him into the Garden of Eden. And as he does that, he sets him there to guard the garden and to keep the garden. This is a noble charge. This is a kingly task as Adam is God's vice regent. And you know the one tool that God gives Adam to guard the Garden of Eden? It's obedience to the command of God. He gives him the word of God. And then in Genesis chapter 3, the enemy enters the garden. And that stage has been set, so you're expecting Adam to come and drive out the enemy, to drive out the serpent. But he doesn't. He stands there in silence. And words fail. And Adam and Eve listen to the lies of the enemy. And they do the one thing that they're commanded not to do. They take of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they eat from it. And as they do, they're saying, I want to determine for myself what is good and what is evil. I don't want God's rule over me. I want to make my own rules. You see, the essence of sin is always us taking the place of God. And as they grasp for God's place on this fateful day, as they grasp for God's place, sin enters the world. And death follows. And there's a fundamental crack in the foundation of the universe. What God made good has been twisted. What God made beautiful has been bent. Blessings are replaced by curses. And then in verse 14, God announces the certain and inevitable defeat of the serpent. On his belly, he's going to go in submission. And he's going to eat dust all the days of his life in humiliation. And then God announces how that defeat is going to come about in verse 15. And it's the first prophecy in the Bible. And this first prophecy in the Bible doesn't show up on the lips of a prophet. There is no intermediary. God himself here speaks this first, this first prophecy. And it's this. I, in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And here God is dividing all of humanity into two seeds. There's the seed of the woman or the offspring of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There's those who have been made alive together with Christ and those who follow the prince of the power of the air. There are those who love God and those who love the world, the flesh, and the devil. There are those who serve Jesus and those who serve only themselves. And that's why Jesus can say to the Pharisees in John 8:44, he says this, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You see, that's the seed of the serpent. 
But then there's the seed of the woman. In Galatians 3, 29, Paul says this, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You see, there is no third way. Either you belong to the seed of the woman or you belong to the seed of the serpent. Right? It's binary. It's either or. It's on or off. And so that begs the question then, which seed are you? Which seed are you? If you can say this morning with confidence that you belong to the seed of the woman, right? that you belong to Jesus, then I want you to know that's only because of God's goodness, mercy, and grace in your life. That he's moved you from darkness to life. He's made you alive even when you were dead in your transgressions and your sins. And if you can't say for certain this morning that you belong to Jesus, that you're a part of the seed of the woman, then I want to encourage you this morning. The very fact that you're here may mean that God is at work in your life, that you're beginning the journey of God transforming you from darkness into life, that you're in the process of being born again. And I would encourage you this morning to embrace Jesus by faith. And if you want to know how to do that, then I'd encourage you to come and see me or one of the elders after the service. There are only two seeds, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Which seed are you? And then I want you to notice this morning that God puts enmity between these two seeds. God sovereignly steps in and he puts enmity between the serpent and the woman and between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And enmity is hatred. But it's not just any old hatred. It's extreme hatred. It's intense hatred. It's hatred with the intent to kill. And enmity is emphasized in the passage. In the Hebrew, it's the very first word. And by sovereignly placing enmity between these two seeds, God is announcing that all of life and all of human history is going to be a cosmic battle. Too often, I think that we think of life as a day at the beach, right? You get out your umbrella and your favorite chair. Maybe there are activities going on around you. You go out and play paddle ball or volleyball. Maybe you're rushing out into the surf. Perhaps you're sipping your favorite drink. And then all of a sudden, you're shocked and surprised when bullets start whizzing by and there are explosions everywhere. But you see, this day at the beach that we're living isn't your favorite Caribbean destination. It's not some cruise paradise. This is June 6, 1944. It's the invasion of Normandy in World War II. You see, life is a war. And deep down, you felt that. And God tells you that here. He tells you that here. And this cosmic battle is a spiritual battle. Just as it was a spiritual battle in the Garden of Eden, so it's going to be a spiritual battle through all of human history. And that's what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, put on, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And then Paul goes on and he unpacks that whole armor of God that, you're, that you need to equip yourself with in this spiritual battle. And as God speaks this first prophecy in Genesis 3.15, he's saying all of human history is going to be a cosmic battle between these two seeds. And so the question starts to bubble up. How will this battle end? Is there relief in sight? Who's going to win? And the answer is there at the end of 3.15. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now the you refers to the serpent because God is addressing the serpent. But, but who is the he here? Well, if the serpent comes from the seed of the serpent, then the he comes from the seed of the woman. This is the final seed of the woman. This is the ultimate seed of the woman. This is the promise of a coming Messiah. And what is he going to do? Well, this cosmic king, this second Adam, is going to battle the evil one. But unlike the first Adam, this king is going to win the battle. He's going to defeat the evil. When you see, he shall bruise your head, that's a death blow. A blow to the head is a death blow. This coming king is going to destroy the serpent. But in this battle, this coming king, this coming Messiah, is going to be wounded. And you, that is the serpent, shall bruise the Messiah's heel. You see, this is a promise of a wounded victor who will finally end the war. It's the promise of a coming Messiah who will reverse the curse, vanquish the evil one, redeem his people, and make all things new. It's the promise of Christmas. My family loves Marvel movies. Uh, the first Marvel movie was Iron Man in 2008, uh, and when it came out in 2008, it grossed $585 million. And it was such a success that they decided to make 22 more Marvel movies, right? And as they made all of these different Marvel movies, it finally culminated in 2019, earlier this year, with Avengers Endgame. And Avengers Endgame was the highest grossing film in the history of the world it grossed $2.8 billion. Why is humanity obsessed with Marvel movies? It's because we're all looking for a hero. We're looking for someone with special powers and special abilities who will end this war, who will vanquish evil, who will rescue his people, who will make all things new. It's one of the deepest longings of our hearts because it's part of the truest story ever told. It's part of the meta-narrative of human history. It's part of the story 
that makes sense of all other stories. You see, God tells us here in Genesis 3.15, there is the promise of a hero who will finally end this war, who will vanquish evil, who will rescue his people, and who will make all things new. It's the promise of Christmas. Do you know why the Bible is obsessed with genealogies? They're everywhere in the Bible, right? It all goes back to this promise. You see, the biblical authors are tracing the seed of the woman. And as they are, they're searching for the coming Messiah. They're anticipating the fulfillment of this promise. I know he's coming. Where could he be? Right? They're waiting. They're searching. They're looking decade after decade, century after century, millennia after millennia. I know he's coming. Where could he be? They're looking for the promise of Christmas. The last genealogy is in Luke chapter 3. And at the end of Luke chapter 3, Luke traces Adam's genealogy, all, excuse me, Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam. And do you know what comes next? In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is taken out in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And where Adam was silent, this second Adam, this coming king, speaks. And do you know what he speaks? He speaks the word of God. Three times the devil tempts him with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And each time, Jesus answers with the word of God. The word of God that he's imbibed deeply in his soul. You see, the king has come. And the promise of Christmas has been fulfilled. Now, this promise of Christmas, this truest story ever told, echoes on every page of your Bible. You see... After the resurrection, Jesus is walking with his disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he's explaining to them, and it says in Luke 24, 27, that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see, the whole Bible is about Jesus. And that takes us to our Advent theme Every story whispers his name. And we've taken it directly from the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally uh, Sally Martin Lloyd-Jones, by Sally Lloyd-Jones, sorry, snuck her dad's name in there. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones was her dad. If If you have children and you don't have this book, I encourage you to go to Amazon today and order it. It's one of the simplest but best explanations of how all of the stories of the Bible ultimately point to Jesus. Heck, even if you don't have children, I encourage you to buy it. It's one of the simplest and best explanations of how all of the stories in the Bible point to Jesus. You see, every story whispers his name. The whole Bible is about this promise of Christmas. It's the promise of the Messiah. You see, the Christmas story begins at the very beginning. And so what do we do with this promise of Christmas? Well, that takes me to our last two points, the faith of Christmas and the clothing of Christmas. First of all, the faith of Christmas in 320. 
And we'll consider here two names, the faith of Christmas. So after God gives the covenant curses to the serpent in verses 14 and 15, and to the woman in verse 16, and then to the man in verses 17 through 19, there's a very unusual sentence. Look with me at verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And what makes that sentence even more unusual is that Adam has already named his wife. If you go back to Genesis 2, 23, the man says, he, you know, so God presents the woman to man, right? And the man explodes in rapturous love poetry. He says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she's taken out of man. He's saying, this is my soulmate. This is one who corresponds to me. And you can hear the correspondence in the name woman and man. In Hebrew, it's ish and isha, right? So why the second name? Why name her Eve? Well, this is Adam's response to the curses. Sin and death have entered the world. There's pain everywhere he turns. And if Adam was still in the mindset of verse 12, where he's blaming the woman for everything, what might he have named her? He might have named her Lady Death, Sin Seeker, right? Shalom Breaker, Home Wrecker, Pain Girl. But what does he name her? He names her Life. Eve means life. In response to the curses, he names her life. Why? Adam is embracing the promise of God by faith. He's surrounded by sin and death and guilt and shame. But in the midst of all of that, he clings to the promise of God. This promise defines him, not his surroundings. He's walking by faith. There's a deeper reality. There's a truer story. Adam takes God at his word, and even though it looks bleak now, he's holding on to the promise that one day the Messiah will come and he will vanquish evil and reverse the curse and rescue his people and make all things new and bring life, eternal life, the good life, life as it was meant to be. That's the faith of Christmas. And so now every time Adam calls his wife's name. Hey, Eve. Hey, Eve. He's reminding himself of God's good gift. He's reorienting his life to God's promise. And you see, Adam's faith is an invitation. We're all orienting our story around something. We all have faith. We're all believing in something. And Adam's faith is an invitation to think about which story you're orienting your life around. And that changes from moment to moment. This is an invitation to reorient your story around the one story that shapes every story in the Bible, around the one story that shapes all of human history, B.C. and A.D., before Christ and in the year of our Lord. And this invitation is saying, let that story orient your story today, 
now, in this moment. That's the faith of Christmas. It reorients your story. And then God responds. And it's an unusual response. And this brings us to verse 21. The clothing of Christmas. The clothing of Christmas. Two coverings. Lots of clothing can be associated with Christmas. Did you have some clothing that you break out at this time of year? Maybe it's a tacky Christmas sweater, a funny tie, a silly hat. Or maybe you have a bright red jacket with white fluffy trim, right? And clothing says something about us. Clothing points to our identity. You can tell a policeman by their uniform or a fireman by their uniform. You can tell someone in the medical community because they wear scrubs. Or you can tell which team someone is on, whether you're watching the NBA or the NFL or college sports or high school sports. You can tell which team they're on by what? By their uniform. You see, clothing has always been a part of our story. And thank goodness, right? And look at the clothing here. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And what makes this even more unusual is that Adam and Eve, back in verse 7, had already clothed themselves with fig leaves. So why this second covering? Why are animal skins better than fig leaves? I don't think this is about fashion or modesty or warmth. Where do animal skins come from? Animals. What kind of animals? Dead ones. You see, not only is God the first prophet in verse 15, speaking the first prophecy, but here in verse 21, he's also the first priest offering the first sacrifice. Do you remember the penalty for eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? In chapter 2, verse 17 was what? In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Why is Adam still alive? For Adam to escape death, something had to die in his place. Adam was spared because God took the life of another. This was the first atoning sacrifice. And you see what God is doing? He's covering their sin. He's covering their guilt and shame with the death of another. You see, there are only two ways to cover sin. You can hide from God and try to cover it yourself, or you can accept his sacrifice on your behalf. They clothed themselves, Adam and Eve did, in verse 7 with fig leaves. But now God puts his clothing on them by offering a sacrifice. And as he does that, he foreshadows the ultimate and final sacrifice. And this also explains the wounded victor of verse 15. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We sang it this morning. The Messiah is coming to die. You see, the way that this coming Messiah would vanquish evil and rescue his people and make all things new and bring life is through his sacrificial death. 
And so Adam is clothed with the clothing of Christmas. It's not a tacky Christmas sweater. It's not a silly hat. It's not a red coat with white trim. It's an animal skin from a dead animal, from the first sacrifice. And Adam's sin was covered. And the same way on this side of the fulfillment of the promise as Christ has come, we are given the clothing of Christmas. It's not available at Amazon or some secondhand store. No, this is a family heirloom. Paul tells us that we have put on Christ. In Galatians 3.27, he says, For as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We have put on Christ once for all in our justification, and we're commanded to put on Christ every day in our sanctification. Paul says in Romans 13.14, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And as we put on Christ day by day, Christ becomes our uniform and our identity. And our sin has been covered. And that's the clothing of Christmas. So this Advent season, my prayer for us is that we would see the promise of Christmas more and more clearly. And that would strengthen our faith of Christmas while we savor and relish and delight in the clothing of Christmas. You see, the Christmas story begins at the very beginning. And understanding that reorients our story. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to your table this morning, as you've set out this meal before us, I pray that you would help us to see the gospel clearly, to see how it echoes through all of Scripture and through all of this life. And Father, I pray that as we face this cosmic battle, that you would help us day by day to put on Jesus. And as we do, that we would savor that clothing, that atoning death on our behalf. Help us to believe, Father, we're weak, we struggle with unbelief. Help us to believe, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.